in Radio Land, and welcome to Episode 2 of the OMG SMC Podcast, the official podcast of St. Mary's College of California. I'm Zach Farmer. For this episode, we will explore big data and how it is connected to racial justice and equity. Our expert panelists will share their work and explore the role and place of technology in creating a more just society. I will pass it along to our moderator and the Dean of the School of Liberal Arts, Sheila Hassel-Hughes. The following panel was recorded on October 7th. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Racism in the Machine, Racial Justice and Equity Work in Big Data, User Accessibility, and Customer Success. Um, my name is Sheila Hassel-Hughes, and I am the Dean of the School of Liberal Arts at St. Mary's College of California, or SOLA, as we call ourselves. We are co-sponsoring this event with the Office of Alumni Engagement, uh, and this event supports two major initiatives in the School of Liberal Arts, our Planning for Inclusive Excellence, or PI initiative, and the Liberal Arts Bridge Program, or LAB, uh, which is a program of career exploration and development specifically for liberal arts majors. We know that liberal arts majors do really well uh, in life in the long term, as uh, one or more of our panelists are testimony to, um, but LAB provides a bridge to that long-term success for our graduates. I want to do a quick plug for our next LAB event for students. I hope we have some students uh, tuning in tonight, um, and that is an alumni panel on the topic resiliency in the liberal arts, reimagining careers during uncertain times. Uh, students can join us next Thursday, October the 15th at 7 p.m. on Zoom. And uh, Zach, if you would drop the link to the info for that into the chat um, for our uh, viewers, that would be awesome. Otherwise, you can visit the School of Liberal Arts webpage, look for lab and find the information there. So the title for tonight's panel is Racism in the Machine. And uh, when I came up with that uh, suggestion for a title, um, I was thinking about the machine as technology, literally, um, in what ways is racism manifest, um, built in, if you will, to the technology uh, that we use um, that we engage with in our daily lives and work. Um, but also I was thinking about the machine more metaphorically on a, on a grander scale, the organization, the industry, society at large. Um, and so my hope is that our panelists will speak to whatever part or parts of that uh, seem most uh, relevant or compelling for them. Our distinguished panelists are Dr. Nicole Brown, who is Assistant Professor of Sociology at St. Mary's College. Carlos Granda, who is Vice President of Global Customer Success at Google Cloud, uh, and also a St. Mary's parent and member of our School of Liberal Arts Advisory Board. And Jessica Poole, a product designer and user experience researcher currently with App Dynamics. She's a St. Mary's kinesiology alumna from the class of 2004. Uh, uh, fuller bios are included uh, on the YouTube page, so you can look for those below. Okay, so um, I would like to begin by inviting each of our panelists, and, and um, maybe we can go, they appear on my screen as Nicole, then Jessica, then Carlos, um, to tell us a little bit about your work uh, and the way that big data or technology more generally plays into that. 
um, how you came to be interested and or involved in issues of equity, um, access, um, user experience, or racial justice in your field? And what do you see as the biggest challenges uh, in this area? So a little bit about your work, how you became engaged with issues of equity um, or just racial justice, and what you see as the biggest challenges. Um, Nicole, would you like to start? Sure. I'm I'm getting a bit of a loop, so I'm going to try to kind of talk over the, the loop I have here. Um, so I guess first, I'll do that. Uh, first, I, I, I just wanted to start by saying uh, thank you uh, to Dean Hughes and um, everyone in the, can you hear me? Oh, <laughs> um, uh, just, you know, thank you to everyone, you know, behind the scenes who, who made this happen. Um, and thank you for inviting me to be uh, a part of, of the discussion. Um, so broadly, my research focuses on undoing the erasure of Black women's contributions uh, historically and in the, in the present. Um, one branch of my research relates to gendered social movements. So I'd study consumerism. I've, I've written on the Don't Buy campaigns of the 1920s and 30s. The, the boycotts and boycotts of the 50s and 60s, the welfare rights movement, and the, the Black women who led that movement. And in doing that archival research, I came face to face with, with the violence of the archives and the, the ways in which the contributions of, of Black women were rendered invisible, and also the ways in which uh, many academic disciplines, you know, including my own, uh, determined evidence and and who had rights to uh, make knowledge claims. So um, that was really where my curiosity about knowledge of um, or sociology of knowledge began to form. And I started to to revisit how we come to knowledge and ways of of intervening uh, via methodology and uh, specifically computation. Um, so uh, another dimension of my work, which relates to this panel, is about how I can utilize uh, computation to undo the erasure of, of Black women uh, in the past and in the present, in the analog and in the digital um, space. So um, I, I utilize what I call a critical computation, which takes Black feminist contributions to uh, reimagine computation and, and algorithms and how they can be deployed in service to Black women's uh, knowledge reclamation. So I, I like to kind of paraphrase uh, Audre Lorde. Um, I know Dean Hughes is, is uh, familiar with, with her work, but you know, I, I, I take the machine's tools and though I can't dismantle the machine with them, you know, I can still use them to break some things. So my work is about breaking things. Jessica, would you like to go next? A little bit about your work, uh, the way that big data or technology more generally plays into that, and how you became interested in issues of equity and access, racial justice, and what you see as the biggest challenges. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so again, I just also want to thank you, Sheila, for including me in this conversation. Um, happy to be on this panel with uh, Nicole and Carlos, and and you know trying to um, contribute as I can to this conversation. Um, First, hopefully everyone can hear me. I just lost signal and I think I'm back, but hopefully it all is good. Excellent. Um, so I, I kind of came into this work, I, I'll be honest, I think I'm, I would 
classify myself as somewhat new to um, taking a structured approach at how to create change. Um, but I really first got interested in social justice was, was um, studying uh, in physical therapy. And so I really, it became clear to me that depending on um, socioeconomic status, you know, that that would be a determinant of whether or not you had access to um, proper or adequate health care. And so I ended up going to school for physical therapy and um, really wanting to do work around spinal cord um, injury and rehabilitation and making sure that one, we could really push innovations forward in the research um, around spinal cord injury and walking recovery. And then that we could scale um, that that information as well to make sure that regardless of income, people could have access to, um, you know, all of the best care. So it kind of, you know, started off with me being quite the idealist um, and wanting to do, you know, being quite the idealist. And I think when I was in school, I really came face to face with uh, discrimination and, and really got to see how, um, yeah, unfortunately, racism and discrimination that still are at play and really impact, uh, it really impacted my life. It definitely changed the trajectory of things. And that's ultimately how I got into product design work uh, right now. And so kind of bridging those two things, I think, you know, dealing with the the discrimination and the inequities that I faced um, while in grad school, it really got me thinking about, you know, what if things like this happen to um, folks with even less resources to be able to, um, you know, withstand this type of, uh, these type of things. And from then on, I really started to look at where are the spaces that I can support uh, primarily youth, but whomever, um, in cultivating the skills necessary to really make sure that they had access to the resources that they need to thrive in life, period, regardless, you know, and sorry, how do I say it? It's, it's tricky. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm stumbling a little bit because I'm dancing around the fact that, you know, socioeconomic status, money is a big thing. Um, and so, you know, wanting kids to really have access to the education that they need so that they can get the jobs that they need or go to the schools that they want to go to. Um, and so, and then also that they know how to thrive in those environments, making the right connections um, so that they continue to have the same level of access that everybody um, should be entitled to. So, um, so that's really how I got introduced to this. Um, right now, I'm new, just transitioned from business development work into product design. And my hope is to work in that space because a lot of the ideas that I have, you know, once developing the skill set and, and um, that understanding, it's, there are some, a lot of opportunities for scaling, right? So scaling either, um, you know, uh, ed tech or um, health tech. And so looking at opportunities at how can I leverage my uh, background in healthcare and education in the technology space and really create some solutions that are scalable so much so that everybody is able to access them. So that's a little bit about me um, and my work. And I think there was there another question as a part of that.
Yeah, the third, the third question was about the biggest challenges, but I think let's go to Carlos and then maybe I'll ask each of you to kind of revisit that question of sort of what you see as the biggest challenges in your particular area. So Carlos, Perfect. could you speak a little bit about the way that you came to um, technology or um, big data and your specific work in that field or an, an overview of what you actually do? Um, and how you came to be involved in or interested in issues of equity, access, or racial justice. Uh, well, hello, everybody. Uh, first, thank you, Sheila, for inviting me. This is really cool to uh, be part of this panel. And Nicole and Jessica, I look forward to having some good conversation. And hopefully for me, uh, hopefully it'll be a great lesson for me as well to learn because um, it's, it's uh, especially where we are today, it's uh, uh, we're on a, in a journey of learning and understanding what's going on in this world because it's... Uh, Sometimes uh, it's, uh, it's, it makes it a very difficult uh, world to live in, especially with kids that I'm uh, trying to groom into young adults uh, and young men someday. It's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation to be as a parent. Um, so my name is Carlos Granda. Um, I work for Google Cloud. So Google Cloud is part of the broader Google family. Um, as you all know, Google, it's a company of about 130,000 people. The Google Cloud being a smaller version or a smaller side of Google, it's only about 35,000 people. I joined the company about a year ago. And, uh, and so I'm in a little bit of a different journey than, than maybe some of you are. Um, my goal was to come in into Google Cloud and build a brand new organization from scratch. And I joined in September of 2019. Um, so I just, uh, what we call our Googleversary, I just uh, hit that big, big milestone of one year. Uh, and I'm proud to say that by the end of this uh, this year, by the end of December, we have gone from zero to 200 people. But with that comes, uh, it's like the great line of Spider-Man that says, with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, with that, it wasn't just about building an organization and hire people, but also get a chance to build a culture. Um, and culture includes principles and core values. And part of that was to ensure that we are not just addressing our DEI um, as a principle to make sure that we're diverse, we're equitable, we're inclusive of everyone, but also with the latest things that have been going on in our world today is how do we continue to uh, enable and learn about what's going on in the world. And so we, uh, the team that I am building is a, a customer success manager. So customer success manager is a team that um, once a opportunity is closed with a customer, meaning we sell them Google Cloud, our team takes over. And so we work very closely with our customers to help them unlock the value of our cloud technology. And that includes artificial intelligence, big, uh, big query, and pretty much anything that you can think of when it comes to cloud technologies. But that also means that, you know, when we're building and hiring our customer success managers and they are working closely with our customers, they themselves need to have and be part of a culture that where they feel engaged, respected, and included as a team. And so um, I myself, and I've been doing this for now almost 25 years, and we've always been something that has always been a core part of our team to kind of drive that sort of culture of being humbled and um, and uh, being valued and that there is a no hierarchical model in our organization, but everybody has a voice. Um, but in the last six months, I think uh, we've taken that to a whole new level. And for me has been a little bit of a le uh, lesson as a leader to adjust and to learn. Uh, Cause I think, uh, you know, when you think about where we are today, 
Um, there is nothing that I think can prepare us to, I think, what we've been going through now. And so we are finding ourselves, or at least I'm finding myself, rather than trying to just inspire the team, I am doing more listening. And so when we think about all the stuff that is going on, it's all really about listening. Because uh, in some cases, there are things that are going on in this world that ourselves, we don't understand. And so for me to pretend that I can say to someone that I know what you're going through when I myself may have not gone through is very unfair. And so um, so those are the kinds of things that we're dealing with. And so part of me building a team, so I'm trying to build a culture, engage with our customers. And it has changed completely the way we engage with our customers. It's not just about talking about technology and business, but even in some cases, hosting sessions with our customers around things that we at Google are doing and how we can actually incorporate that into our customers. Uh, so it's been a, a very interesting uh, 12 months for me here at Google. Thanks, Carlos. Um, so does anyone want to add anything else in terms of speaking to, um, in your particular field, what you see as the biggest challenges in terms of um, equity, access, or racial justice in this moment? I mean, I heard Carlos talk about kind of the learning curve um, for, for leaders, right? Um, it's not simply about enculturating people into one's culture, but, um, but, but learning how others experience it, see it, what they can contribute to it um, based on their experiences um, in the world as well as in the organization. Um, but, I'm, but I'm wondering what, um, you know, maybe Nicole in your research and or in your teaching today, what you see as, as the biggest challenge. And Jessica, as you've made this transition into um, product design, um, what do you see as as the um, the big challenge in this area? Yeah, so so I can um, speak to just kind of thinking of the challenges broadly that I see, um, and also kind of um, connecting with what Carlos mentioned around the importance of of listening and also the importance of of bearing witness. Um, with that, one of the challenges that I see is is around um, access, and and when when I invoke access, you know, I'm not talking about like you know access to kind of um, um, you know products or services as as consumers, but but access to to jobs where um, decisions are being made, you know, access to boardrooms, access to senior leadership positions, um, and and not just the DNI positions, right? Um, and I, I, I say this kind of continuously, it's, it's almost like a, a, an internal mantra. And um, I think we see it um, a bit more um, in this kind of recent iteration of, of this kind of recognition of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, a, a movement that started almost a decade ago um, by queer Black women, right? Um, but I, I continuously, you know, um, uh, you know, kind of say that, you know, um, oftentimes people in power want to be in proximity uh, to Black folks when it serves them. But the proximity is not the same as commitment. So one of the challenges I see is, is how we begin to structurally change our institutions, our academic institutions and, and otherwise, to reflect this, this kind of new interest in, in Black people's condition. So that um, once the 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 allure of this moment is is passed a bit, we're not backsliding, um, um, you know, from whatever uh, progress um, that's been made. 
Yeah, and I think I would piggyback on um, what Nicole said, you know, um, having been at App Dynamics, I guess, about four months now, um, I kind of entered in right around the, maybe like the peak of, of what's been going on for the past few months following George, uh, George Floyd's death. And, uh, you know, I was um, surprised, but also impressed to see the directness, directness with which they were talking about um, the impact of racism in in these organizations, right? And and that they were committed to taking a stand and and um, changing, making change. Um, and I and I I fully believe that they have the intent to do that. And I think that um, it was reassuring. That's one of the spaces I can say I felt like that integri integrity exists. But to Nicole's point, it's okay. And so how do we do it, right? How do we how do we really cultivate that change? How do we make sure that we have um, equity in the representation of leaders and decision makers. Jessica's freezing up on us a little bit. I can I can jump in. Sheila, yeah, go ahead. Thank one, you, Carlos. I would say I, I think leadership is always extremely important when it comes to um, setting an organization. You know where the direction, where the company's going, what the strategy is, all these things. And I think, but I think for me now more than ever, um, I think leadership needs to not just talk about it not just put it in some slides, not just talk about how we're doing things just because it's the thing to do or because we're in the moment, but it is about taking actions. And so for, for me, especially, for example, one of the things that we've had to do and we're gonna have to do for the next two, three years is just grow so rapidly. Uh, in 12 months, hiring 200 people is unheard of. And think about all the things that we've had to do, but we've received feedback specifically on some unconscious bias that we have done, right? Whether it's, you know, the interview panel that we put in place. Uh, we have, you know, women coming in and interviewing for the job and suddenly having to interview with four men or having a black applicant coming in and interviewing with four just, you know, white can, uh, uh, folks in, in, in the panel or four men for that matter, right? And so little things like that that we, and, and by the way, it was never, thought through that it was just more scheduling or more but as we've had to learn around how to adjust to our practices and just to be more conscious about the things that we're doing and i think that's the part of it i think i'm really proud of google what google has done and i think i'm proud of the team that that we have today it's because we've heard people we've been listening and try to pivot and make adjustments to how we do things right how do you know where do we go and get candidates Right. Uh, Google carries, uh, thankfully for us, we carry a great brand where people do want to come and work here. So it's not a difficult thing to go and get candidates that want to come work at Google and Google Cloud. But with that, we also have responsibility to ensure that we are bringing a, you know, the right set of candidates, that we are searching and, and pulling the right people and give people the opportunity to be part of Google Cloud. And so that's been a great thing. The second thing I think Google has done, and I think for me, also, I'm, I'm very fortunate to say that I work for Google and proud to say that I work for Google because I think the things that we are rolling out are things that didn't just start today. Things have been going on for years and years and years, but obviously we've highlighted them even more. But there's two key programs that we have done. One of them is Google announced later earlier this year that we were going to do a student loan repayment program. And so this, we took all of our students and um, that had, and that uh, we, we set a, a set of amount of dollars that we would actually help some of our, to, uh, our students to be able to pay back their student loans. Because we found that, um, 
you know, there's a lot of disproportionately for communities um, of color and women who weren't able to pay that back. And so we were able to do that quite a bit. And we work closely with our Black Googler network and the Black Leadership Advocacy Group to ensure that we do that. So that was program number one. I think the second thing, I think when I look at our CEO and just the company in general is we announced the, the Google for Startups Accelerator, which is we focus on providing funds for some of our startups that are owned by uh, Black uh, founders. And so we worked on that as well, where we give them the technology, we give them the tools, we provide mentorship for all of them as well. And I know that a lot of the technology companies are doing sort of similar types of programs. But again, it's when it comes to leadership, it's like taking actions. It's like, we, we got to stop talking about it, right? Because we can have this panel, so I can tell you, I can probably join 30 panels in a week to talk about it. But seeing leaders and, you know, folks like Nicole and, you know, everybody else around, like taking actions, that's ultimately what's going to speak and what's going to resonate, hopefully results, um, rather than just kind of talking about it and seeing it in some pretty slides. Thanks, Carlos. Jessica, we, we lost your last um, little bit of your comment. Did you want to did you want to uh, circle back to that for us? Yes. Sorry, it's funny. I work out here all day, eight hours, no issues, and then here we yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, it's prime time. Um, 2020. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So no, I was just I was saying, you know, I think equity and the representation and the, at, at the level of the decision makers matters, right? So that you can bring on um, diversity of opinions and diversity of abilities, right? So, you know, as we're making products, the idea is we want our product to be adopted by as many users as possible. And what you see a lot of right now is, um, you know, take uh, an idea like the facial recognition or um, um, there's some other products where we're using the camera to help us identify and diagnose things. And a lot of those products are designed using um, you know, primarily like white folks. And so, so then when that, that product gets used for a person of color, it's less effective. So, so when we're talking challenges, you know, what do we need to do in product design? We, we need to make sure that um, there's just pure diversity that represents the population if we're really trying to design products that fit the population. Um, otherwise we end up designing something that we think might be great for a certain person uh, without really, really, um, having that clarity. So I think the biggest challenge, again, I think it starts at the top, that that period, that access to the leadership roles, and then just the awareness and the acceptance of, and the understanding that it does make a difference, right? It does make a difference to have a diverse team, um, the products you come up with, the solutions you come up with. I, I can't see how it, they wouldn't be optimized with that, um, that level of diversity, so. so Thank you so much, all of you. This is this is great. Um, I want to I, I want to think a little bit at, about the you've spoken to in various ways the um, the resurgence of of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, the the awareness and attention that you've seen in your own organizations, um, the desire to speak to that, to act, to listen. Um, and and yet also the real importance of of structural change. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm I'm mindful of of Nicole's um, uh, articulation of that of of getting um, um, Black Indigenous people of color at 
the table where decisions are made and in the lab where products are designed and at, at kind of all levels. I'm, I'm interested, Carlos, given your um, call that, you know, we need to do more than talk, um, we need to act and we need to, and we need to move you know, in some instances, with all due haste, right? There, there are things that, that need to be changed now. What, what difference has COVID made? Um, in, because we're, we're battling these two incredibly disruptive revolutionary forces um, in our society and work lives right now, both the wave of, of violence against uh, black folks and the 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 um, the increasingly rising social movement um, uh, against that violence um, and COVID, which has disrupted the way we do things. To what in what ways are you seeing the the disruption of COVID providing opportunities to act to make structural change that will be a benefit? Um, or increase access, equity, and justice. Yeah, it's a that great question, question. That question. That question wasn't on the list, so I'm <laughs> I'm popping it on you. No, you know, tr uh, trust me. It's uh, even though I have some great hair here, uh, it, uh, being in the state we are today, there was no manual that came with it. In 25 years of doing this, um, no, you know, nobody told me. Uh, how to actually build a team and lead a team through not just the social injustice going on in the world, plus global pandemic uh, and, and everything else that's going on in the world. Um, I, I would say there's a couple of things. Um, for me, I think it's you know, just something to keep in mind. Um, probably 80%, 75% of the folks that I have hired have been onboarded virtually because we have hired them in the last six months, okay? So from a Google perspective, everybody knows uh, about our Google culture and everybody knows about the free food and everybody knows about our cool offices and all that. But think about that too, though. You know, we have 70% of our folks that are coming in, coming into Google and wanting to experience the culture, the free food, the just, you know, I've never seen it where people want to be in the office. In previous companies, we would go to the office and there was even nobody there. Here at Google, the offices are packed because that is part of our culture. And so that in itself, from a COVID perspective, created an incredible dynamic where people were getting their laptops at home. Uh, we've actually have sent free snacks to their house just so they can try to experience a little bit of what the Google culture is. But I also think that, you know, as leaders, we've had to get very creative. And I think what it's allowed me to do, too, is to have a better reach as well and a broader reach. So um, a part of our customer success managers, we have actually quite a bit of our customer success managers that have come from the black community. So we have a very diverse, actually I'm very proud that we have reached, you know, um, you know, as an organization, we have reached a very diverse, very balanced team, not just experience, but color, race, gender, uh, you know, everything. I think uh, it's just, it's incredible that I think we've been very thoughtful about doing that. But it's given me the ability to have a broader reach and so with this, we actually are hosting now coffee corners, coffee chats to actually different folks. And again, as I said earlier, it's about listening and taking action. I think for our team as well as providing them a, uh, easier access to our customers, 
because I think that we got to think about this um, issues that we've been having from the George Floyd, you know, um, incident as well as with everything else. It's that it's impacting our customers too. It's not just impacting me or my team. It's impacting the world, and so everybody's feeling it. And so it it has made it um, a bit easier to interact with our customers who may be facing the same challenges. And so it has given us a completely new, uh, broader view to be able to have these very serious conversation and topics with our customers. Uh, We've also have taken actions in some cases where, you know, if we don't feel like our teams are being well respected in certain situations that we've taken actions to as well as, which is maybe not be doing, you know, work with a particular partner or a customer or or, or put someone in a situation like that. So it's definitely given us, um, you know, we all want to go back to the office. We don't want to go at the visit our. We want to go back to visit our customers, but I think it's given us a broader view and a broader access to be able to make better connections with people. Jessica um, or Nicole, can you speak to sort of the the intersection of COVID and Black Lives Matter? What is the what is the what are the opportunities and impediments to action and change that 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 um, intersection is is creating as you see it sorry guys um yeah i think you know the opportunity that i see that i I kind of noted is because covid has everybody shelter started everybody sheltering in place you know everybody was um somehow able to be more present to everything that was going on and um i don't know if i don't know I don't know if it's proper to see it, it kind of heightened their awareness, but somehow it, I think it landed on the Black Lives Matter movement has, it was a good um, time for it to have this high visibility and people were able to be just, sorry guys, my dog is barking, more aware of it. And so I think, I, I think there, the opportunity is, you know, while everybody is slowed down a little bit from all of their other, um, uh, it's not proper. You know, I mean, there's definitely the parent, you know, the concern about, am I going to get COVID and, and, and the health concerns there. But I think also because people are home more, they're logged on more. Um, I think that's why this movement has been able to, um, gain more empathy perhaps is the right word, um, from people who otherwise couldn't quite understand it or see it so you know my hope is that we we while we have this captive audience we continue to have these conversations um you know and and ask for actions and response from our leaders and from our community i think as as individuals we we also can be taking more actions to cultivate change as well so i think you know hopefully everyone's feeling um, that they have agency in this moment to to be a part of a change um, so that's, that's kind of the opportunity that I see. Yeah. Um, just to, to, to piggyback off of, uh, what Jessica was saying about, um, I guess the bringing race to the forefront for me, it's, it's really a, a reminder of how salient race is and continues to be right. Um, and kind of what I'm keeping an eye on is kind of like this, as we're kind of prioritizing um you know black lives or prioritizing black lives when we're we have in in this case with COVID some you know easy financial excuses to kind of walk away 
And um, I think that, you know, that'll be a challenge, um, you know, for, for university leadership and for corporations. Um, and the reality is, you know, we, we, we do and we need to be able to kind of walk and chew gum at the same time, right? So um, COVID is, is requiring us to reimagine a lot of things. And in our haste to adjust, I'm, I'm just wondering how quickly we're willing to let go of Black lives. Yeah, I think that's just want to kind of piggyback on that. that. That's the concern, right, is, is, I don't know, there's all these, the kids have all these terms, but this, this allyship that kind of isn't like this uncommitted allyship um, where, you know, I mean, the commercials that you see and, and all of these people who, who, you know, are doing something and it looks like they care, but then you wonder long term, what actions are they really going to take to really to act on that, right? To end inequality, right? To, to um, provide equity and to really try to create justice um, where it's like, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear that it, it doesn't exist. Um, across, you know, the races. And, and I think that's something we all need to care about. And I know we say Black Lives Matter and definitely Black Lives Matter, but I, I think this is, this is an opportunity for us to period create racial justice and equity. And I think, you know, I, I can't see why not everybody can get behind that. So. Yeah, if I can, if I can add something to that too, because I think that's really important because I think the my concern in, 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 you know, just like we've had issues, I mean, this is not a first time, unfortunately, that we've had issues, but, you know, my concern has always been is that, you know, once this, you know, the, the, the you know, that is in the news today stops, and so what, what happens after, right? And we can let that happen. And so I think what we've been trying to do, at least the way I think about it is that we have to put this and make it part of our core fabric of the culture of teams that we're building. And so today, the way we do it is we make this part of our key principles, our core values of how we do things, how do we operate, how do we hire, how do we talk about it, you know, the just everything. Because like, this can be like the 2020 slide and we have logos and we talk about hashtag Black Lives Matter and then it's over. Like it cannot stop. And I know that Nicole mentioned it has been going on for 10 years, you know, but it's like, it, this is my concern. Uh, that, um, you know, I don't want organizations or leaders to think about it, that it is just the, let's just talk about it today because it's the cool thing and the fair thing to do and we're going to look good for our employees because the employee survey is coming up. It's got to be something that is systematic change that we as leaders need to implement. And leaders of all races are in control and power to kind of make this thing happen where it is part of our culture, is part of our fabric, is it's how we breathe shouldn't be, you know, slide seven of a hundred page presentation. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the way I'm thinking about it is that I have an opportunity to kind of change the culture of our team and build it and have as our future leaders continue to build that this team, because I'm hoping that this team continues to grow and evolve. And it's got to be, you know, just like the book says, you know, build to last. It's got to be built beyond my years. You know, when someday I can sneak out of the back door this organization continues to go. There's a culture that goes through it. It can't just be because it was the 2020, you know, COVID-19 team, or it can be that. It's got to be much broader than that. What strategies or approaches do you see that give you the most hope for dismantling racism in the machine? Um, 
how how are you how can you how can we work within the technology sector um our our own industries um fields um in ways that that shift those structures i hear carlos you really talking about a central strategy being building building the team right um and um building a culture um that has uh this at the heart of it nicole i heard you talk at the beginning about access to the table where decisions are made um are there other strategies that you think are really important for for moving things forward and and achieving lasting change um i could i was i was waiting for this question um, <laughs> um cuz um i you know i mentioned i i study uh, political consumerism so um what that research teaches uh, me is that you know there there are ways in which we can divest uh from institutions that aren't interested in dismantling um racism and um so uh during the the don't buy campaigns of the 1920s you know the demands were around um hiring and access to jobs where you know these businesses were were taking money from black communities but not investing in those communities um and we're seeing you know this today but but often you, you know we'll, we'll see it in the uh kind of on social media platforms a much more decentralized approach and and sometimes we see individual calls for boycotts after individual experiences which is is different from um organized movements that that establish you know specific demands uh larger broader demands that um had an impact on a on a critical mass of people um so so there's there's that i i also think that as as people become more aware of the prevalence of technology and um and algorithms and the the ways in which technology is used to make decisions um that raised awareness is allowing for a shift where people can be more critical uh more more skeptical uh, ask questions about um whether we should be doing these things and and considering the implications of the things that we create and and put into the world so uh there's there's kind of this attempt i see to kind of pry open that black box of technology and i mean if we think about you know in education we we have algorithms that are being utilized in admissions decisions um in uh flagging uh students and predicting their success and retention rates uh we're using technology and and putting a tremendous amount of trust and and um uh faith in the ability of, of this technology you know technology to be objective uh when you know oftentimes technology can serve the the opposite purpose of of reproducing some of the the existing built environment and all of its issues and and failings that that come with it but but doing it more efficiently right so um there's a there's a way in which um we can be complicit um you know in in ways that you know universities partnering with government agencies to deploy technologies that surveil uh and criminalize folks you know we we use technology for predictive policing um in the courts judges use it to make decisions about sentencing um you know it's used in um healthcare they just commissioned you know healthcare um so um 
what I ask, or I guess my question is, you know, I, I ask what, what would these technologies be like if we committed to um, the tenets of black feminism, for example? Um, you know, what would these technologies look like? Um, what would they do? What would they refuse to do? Um, if they were grounded in, in kind of a liberatory uh, ideology and praxis. So um, I, I think that as we think about technology and build technology, we can't, we can't throw, the, throw the rock and then hide our hand, you know, as it, as it relates to kind of unleash, unleashing these technologies into the world and, and being accountable. And um, all of these, you know, we understand that, you know, that um, algorithms can use biased data um, and just because it's a lot of data, you know, big data, um, doesn't mean it's objective. And, um, and really recognizing that um, when we make those claims, we, we're not requiring changes from institutions that deploy that data. And that, that's part of the problem. Thank you. Those are some big issues. <laughs> Sorry, I was really... No, excited. no. I mean, I think the... the, the um, the consumer, uh, the power of consumer response and holding, um, you know, how do we hold organizations responsible from within and from without, right? So a seat at the table, but there's also the, the pocketbook, uh, the power of the pocketbook is, is compelling. Um, I was th thinking about, Jessica, what you had said earlier as well about empathy. And I was wondering about, because so much of what we have talked about is actually about human relationships <laughs> on this panel, right? And fostering culture and the way that we engage with each other uh, through, across, around technology. Are there, are there ways that you see, I mean, social media is an obvious sphere that comes to mind. And I'm thinking, Nicole, about your comments about, about, algorithms and big data too, right? Like Facebook is the place where I engage with diverse people and he hear their stories and share my story and share my likes and my hearts and all that. And it also curates for me based on algorithms who I'm going to see and, you know, is manipulated by Russian bots. So <laughs> it's uh, this really complex, messy mix of empathy and politics um, and technology. I'm just wondering if you, if you have thoughts about technologies that you see as, or ways to engage with technology that you see as potential ways to promote empathy and or actual allyship rather than what the performative allyship that Jessica was referring to earlier. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that's, um, you know, I've been, uh, looking at projects that actually considered that, right? How do we uh, perhaps develop apps that that really do allow people to to connect for the intent of connection, right? As opposed to connect for the intent of making a company money. Um, I think I think the challenge to that is, you know, we'd have to be really open to the idea that 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 is a value, that is a more of value than having information and power. You know, I think Facebook does a lot of great things. Instagram, all these, you know, they do a lot of great things. And the technology, I think, is great and it could be used for many good things. But the, their, their, their motive is, is something different. 
you know, and I think until we address like what is the motive for the design of these products, the things will always somehow be skewed to give one group power and take power from another group. But I think, you know, I, I think that, that, but this is the beauty of product design and, and being in this space and the beauty again of having more diverse people at the table and leaders so that you can, or people who just get it and want to hire more diverse creatives, then you start to get products developed for different reasons, right? People start to have the skills to, to go out on their own and do these things and there becomes more competition. And, and then we can really see, right? What do people really want? So, you know, I think, I think the question you asked, I'm trying to recall that question you asked Nicole too, because I, I feel like it kind of relates to this. It was around, can you repeat that, Sheila? I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I can. <laughs> I think it was, a, no. it was a general question and it was about, uh, Nicole, do you remember how I, how I framed Wait, it? Ways to hold institutions accountable or hold our institutions accountable strategies for dismantling mm -hmm. racism in the machine. Yeah. yeah. There we go. It, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There we go. <laughs> Teamwork. Um, yeah. Cause I, it makes me think of this, right? The strategy is really, I, you know, I don't know, like I said, I'm an idealist, um, but the strategies have to be about connection, right. And, and really helping people understand that there could be better ways, right. There could be other ways, alternatives for us to do this and, and challenging, um, having an awareness of, you know, that we kind of all fall victim to unconscious bias sometimes and being willing to challenge that, right? And to really check in and say, well, listen, you know, if this group of people makes up this percentage of the population and they, I've got like, you know, 13 and I've got two people here at 2% at my job, like maybe something's up, whether you like it or not, you know, something's up. And I don't think it's valid to suggest that there just aren't that many people applying of a particular race. You know, when I was uh, the director at the Y and at other places, I mean, the number, it kind of shocked me to be honest, because I've heard that, that um, story so many times, but the number of applicants I got from diverse, uh, di uh, you know, black and brown and white people and women and all, all of this, it was unbelievable. And it made me really kind of consider like, you know, it's hiring choices. People are making decisions when that all comes to the table. Um, and they're, you know, yeah. And so, so anyway, the strategy is really being willing, I think, to challenge that, um, that bias and ha having that kind of empathy, right? And, and the, account the self-accountability to understand that I, you know, I probably hold bias. And am I going to challenge that in myself and really, you know, is justice my objective or is power control my objective and then making the, a decision from there so one of one of our I trailed off from empathy but no um, <laughs> well i yeah. think it's all connected Hopefully one, one of our it. comments from the chat ornella writes perhaps algorithms that support a cultural movement oh, um and uh, likes carlos mention of having a diverse panel so we don't lose that human touch um, because algorithms can be biased and if I can add some comments to that, yeah. Sheila, I think I think that's in you know to to Jessica's point, it's a team sport when it comes to this, right? Because one of the things that I you know from a hiring practices perspective, you know, I, I made the I gave the recruiting team and the staffing team, I gave them an example. I said, you're putting in nine men and one woman in front of me, and then you're telling me that I got to hire the best candidate. That's not that's not a fair and balance pool of candidates that I can assess. 
So suddenly the pressure is into me trying to figure out. And I said, so I can go two ways. I can hire the best candidate possible, or I end up hiring, if the woman is not the best candidate possible, hire her because it's the right, you know, balanced view to do. But even if she's not the right candidate, then it's actually insulting to her. Because now I hired her if not for the right reasons. And so the whole team sport is that we have gone all the way from our sourcing team, to our staffing team, to our recruiting team, to our um, onboarding team. And so we've actually have now a chain of all of them walking them through, here's our process, here's the things we got to look at. And so now everybody is accountable, everybody is part of the process. So when it comes to me or it comes to my leaders, when we're trying to hire folks and we're trying to be balanced and we're trying to be diverse and we're trying to give people, uh, you know, to our black community an opportunity to be part of it, it's gotta be through the entire process. It's gotta be through the inside cycle. And part of that has been a lot of it we've done is training and enablement because it is something that I think we don't do enough. Um, um, a big believer, I think, in you know, talking to an institution here. So uh, probably something that you'll agree is it's not something you do just once a year. It's not something you do once a quarter. It's something you do every day. And so we've rolled out two specifically two programs for my leaders, as well as the entire staffing panel, which includes unconscious bias training. And that is actually done every quarter. And we have pushed our training and enablement team to constantly refresh the content because it can't be something back from 2012. It's got to be something that we do and refresh it because there's so many different topics. And then the second one we've done is around inclusive, inclusive leadership training. Because that's, again, it goes back to not really understanding sometimes what does that mean and you know, some, some of these big words are sometimes used where people don't understand really what it means to them. And, and so trying to get everybody sort of trained, enabled, sharing stories and going back to my initial uh, theme of listening and learning and training and, and making sure that, you know, we're all in this thing together. This is not a, this is not just Carlos is staying or Sheila staying. It's like we are on this thing together. And so try, trying to get everybody together sort of in this journey I think it's, it's hopefully, and we've seen, um, I can tell you with 100% confidence that we have seen a difference of just how we are hiring, our hiring practices. You know, even for candidates that may not get the job, they still want them to leave with a great experience mm-hmm. that they felt that, hey, experience was fair. Yeah. I didn't get you the job because you're of, you know, part of the black community or if you're Latin or, you know, you, we made a fair chance and we can with 100% confidence said that we put you in the right, very fair sort of bias format of, of, of interviewing. Well, and if, and if, if an organization is prioritizing racial justice as a central goal, then hiring people who bring experience and expertise that can help us address issues in that regard um, becomes a, a proactive goal of hiring. I mean, one of the things we've done in the School of Liberal Arts is ask people not to just try to recruit a diverse pool for a position that's the same position they imagined 20 years ago, but to rethink the position and to rethink the position in a way that's going to attract a more diverse pool of candidates, and that's in line with the values we say we uphold. Thanks to our moderators, Sheila Hassel-Hughes, and our guests, Nicole Brown, Carlos Granda, and Jessica Poole. This episode was co-sponsored by the Office of Alumni Engagement and School of Liberal Arts Initiatives, 
Planning for Inclusive Excellence, which aims to make curriculum, climate, and faculty in the School of Liberal Arts more diverse and inclusive, and to advance racial justice. And the Liberal Arts Bridge Program, a program of career exploration and development specifically designed for our liberal arts majors. We know liberal arts majors do well in life. Lab provides a deliberate bridge to that long-term success. Music by Brent Dundalski. Be sure to follow or subscribe on Spotify or Anchor FM for more episodes. And in case you missed our first episode, take a listen to Turmoil in Lebanon, where we hear from Emily Redfern and Evelyn Manes about the fires, political unrest, effect of COVID-19, and one of the world's largest non-nuclear explosions in Lebanon. I'm Zach Farmer. Thanks for listening.